You're listening to audio from First Christian Church. To find out more about us or to donate to our ministries, visit firstabq.org. Keep your feet. You are welcome at First Christian. We're glad that you're here. We're a group of people that worship God in two different worship assemblies, 16 different small groups. And so however you're joining us, even if you're joining us online, we're glad that you're here. And we're standing for a reading of God's Word from Romans chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those authorities are there and exist and have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you wish to have no fear of the authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive approval, for it is God's servant for your good. But if you do what's wrong, you should be afraid, for the authority does not bear the sword in vain. It is the servant of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be subject not only because of the wrath, but because of conscience. For the same reason, you should also pay your taxes, for the authorities are God's servants, busy with this very thing. Pay to all what is due them. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Revenue to whom revenue is due. Respect to whom respect is due. And honor to whom honor is due. The word of the Lord. God, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you that it is living and active. And we pray today that it come in such a way, not just simply with sounds that we can hear, vibrations that we can feel, but with power, with full conviction, and with your Holy Spirit. This is our prayer through Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. All right, now. Find your seats. This is a difficult text. It's one I'd prefer to avoid. I've kind of been telling people all week, please don't come on Sunday. Don't be here. I mean, if you talk about government and politics, at best you're going to get a groan or an eye roll or one of these twist and turn and go the opposite direction. At worst, you're going to get screamed at or punched or even spit on. So why, Brady, why do this? Well, we're people that seek God. And I have a fair guess that you are seeking God and looking for help. Some level-headed guidance on how to navigate a divided political world. Help in letting your faith inform how, do you're, how you're able to act in this time. And so that's what I want to do. I want to help, but I also want to mess with you some. Because in this help, I don't want to just do the standard thing. I don't want you to just hear the same old thing that you've always thought. I want to push us further. Because if you came to church expecting to be who you are, who you were before you came in, then you're not really coming for the transformation that God intends for us at church. So if you want some of those same old things, then you can go down the street to the mega church and hear those, the music on repeat and the message on repeat, those same old messages. Today, we're going to be looking for peace. Peace in our political world. 
And so, whenever we hear a passage like this about submitting to authorities, usually people drag this out when they're pleased about who their rulers are. Like, oh, we need to submit to the rulers. Christians like to bring this out whenever it's their president or their governor or their senator who's in power. And we don't like to bring this out if we don't feel good about who's in power. And so I think we've got to ask on the front end a few questions. We've got to get clear. The gospel. Is the gospel intended, and you can answer me on this, is the gospel intended for only one race? Maybe just a few races? Is the gospel intended for only one language? Maybe just a couple of languages. Is the gospel intended for one ethnicity, one culture? Is it possible to be a Christian in a government that doesn't have Christian in front of it? Yes. Well, those answers to that question, I mean, that's what we're looking at, is how to deal with being a Christian whenever we may not be happy with who our leaders are. That's what we're going to look at specifically today. Because a lot of static is in the air about creating a Christian nation or a Christian empire. And so I want to go straight into that and look closely at what Paul has to say. And he lays a lot out here in Romans chapter 1, verses Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. But Paul writes to a world that you and I as Americans cannot imagine. It's a world that's different from our world. It's not the same. It's a time when the Roman Empire ruled. It's a time of great power. When the greatest empire up to that point, and it would only get bigger and only get larger after this point, was established. Now, it's probably been a minute since you've had your ancient history. Am I right about that? So just a little bit of review of what Paul would be writing to is that in about 750 B.C., Rome appears, and Rome was a republic, led originally by kings, but eventually, by 500, it was led by a senate, a group of representative government that was over those kings. You fast forward to the time of Paul, uh, a little bit before the time of Jesus even, and you get down to Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar, in 48 BC, was uh, in kind of a civil war with his political rival, Pompey. I mean, we're talking about a literal civil war. Never a good thing, but always about wrestling for power. And Julius Caesar defeats Pompey. And in 48 BC, he is dubbed the dictator for life. That was new. Before, it had been a republic, representative rule, but now with Julius Caesar, a dictator for life. Within five years, Julius Caesar's friends killed him. But they deified him after his death. They lifted him up to the status of deity. They took his son Octavius, and they made him the very first ever emperor, the Roman Augustus Caesar. Isn't it interesting that Jesus was born into this time, a time when the first person to rule an entire nation, to rule the world, to first to be designated as emperor ruled, that's what Jesus was born into, into this setting. 
And it was a change, it was a transformation that didn't come externally. It wasn't some invading force. They were conquered from within. They were tackled internally. And what once was a a public that was ruled by people, by both wealthy people, the patricians and the plebeians, the tradesmen and the craftsmen, now is ruled by one singular power, one dictator. And that began a string, a string of emperors all through the first century and led to what became the Roman imperial cult where you worship the emperor. The emperor took on divine status, was called the divine son of God, was called Lord. It was one ruler for all. Now, it's probably sounding a lot like Star Wars to you. How's this move, republic to empire? What's going on here? Well, what you need to understand is this is the world that Jesus was born into, where Augustus Caesar was the ruler. He became executed, Jesus did, under the second emperor, Emperor Tiberius Caesar. Then you get Caligula, and then you get down to Emperor Claudius, and Claudius was the one who, with his power in Rome over the capital, expels all of the Jews for a disturbance related to Crestus. Does that sound like anything? No, not a toothpaste. Sounds a lot like Jesus, Crestus. It didn't recognize that this was a Jewish controversy among Christians about who Jesus was to them. All right, so you've got this great setup here where Paul writes in the midst of an empire. And he writes Romans 13. And Romans 13 is not some endorsement of a government. It's not some setup of what the state should look like. It's not the last word on all things related to government. In fact, it's Paul telling this group of people, this unknown religion, to fit in, to lay low. Romans 13 is Paul pressing the play it cool button. Chill out just a little bit. Don't rock the boat. Because there's kind of a strange thing that happens during this time. If you look at the New Testament, what's really striking to me is that there's no animosity toward the empire. That is really curious to me. Really? The Roman Empire? The one that killed Jesus? The one that put Paul in prison and killed Paul? And under Nero, whenever Paul writes this, things were going pretty well with the Roman Empire. But within a few few years, Paul was executed and Christians were executed by Nero. And there's nothing... Is that really true in the New Testament? Well, yeah. If you pay attention, if you look at what's in the New Testament, there is a lot of positive things that are said about the government. Right here in verse 1 about being subject to the rulers. Or you could jump jump over to 1 Timothy 2, verse 18. Pray for, intercede, supplications, give thanksgiving for all the rulers and the governors and the authorities. Like every word he could think of for prayer, he's like, do that for your rulers. Or what about Titus 3? Be subject to the ruling authorities. Or 1 Peter 2, 13. For the Lord's sake, accept the authority of every human institution. Emperor who is supreme? Really? Or governor who enforces the will of the emperor? All of this positive, play it cool, chill out button is reflected by the New Testament writers. 
The one lone exception is Revelation 17, 18, and 19. But that's when you kind of get into the fantasy science fiction section of the New Testament. And so it speaks about the Roman Empire, but it does so as like a character, as a dragon, as Babylon. So when you look at it, you're not really sure, is that the Roman Empire? It sure sounds a lot like the Roman Empire. And so we get all of this where it's played down. It's made to be calm because Paul is writing in a world that's much different than ours. A world where they could die for their religion. And how to help one tiny little sect that wasn't even distinguishable from Judaism outlast even a few years. It's much different from our experience post-enlightenment, post-American Revolution. The democracy that we have is nothing that Paul could have even imagined. And silence was necessary for their own survival. So we're still left with our question, aren't we? What are we supposed to do when we're unhappy with those that are in power? How are we supposed to deal with that? And so what I want to give for you today is a a couple of positive statements, phrasing them positively, a couple of negative statements, and then one kind of bigger statement that brings them all together. So first, the two positive statements. If you look at one suggestion that Paul has for us in verse 7, he says, pay the government. He's taking a lead from, from Jesus, right? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is... Right, I mean, he's just following after Jesus. But how does this play in our airwaves? I mean, think about the, how they would hear it and maybe how we would hear it. Paul, are you serious? We're supposed to pay taxes to the Roman Empire? Do you know what they do with that money? Paul says yes. Even though they knew the abhorrent things that were to be done, Paul says, pay your taxes. Well, what about us? We say, well, that's not how I want my tax dollars spent. That's not the way Paul encourages Christians to act in a time when they're in this position. They are to pay their taxes. Second positive statement. And this one might be a little bit more general. It might be universal. It might stretch well beyond. Generally, the government is concerned with the bad actors. Government passes laws so that people will act in a certain way, act good, and they're really only going to pay attention to those that are breaking the rules. They don't run around patting the people on the back that are following the rules, right? And so what Paul says is be a good citizen. For the most part, generally, if you will obey the rules, you won't get in trouble with the government. Now, again, as Americans, we can't really relate to that. Other countries of the world could say, well, really? I mean, let's ask... Let's ask North Korea what it's like to be led by one ruler, or possibly China, or now, as we're becoming more aware, even Russia, one singular leader giving the mandate where you, for the best, like, like with the emperor, don't cross the emperor or you will be facing your own demise. So generally, we can say, if you'll live in the way of love, if you'll do what is good, you're going to be okay with the government. Well, now you get my two negative statements. Well, Brady, what about Jesus? Jesus lived in the way of love. How did that work out for him? Well, he was executed by the Roman Empire, executed by Pilate. He was bypassed by his own religion. Following the way of love doesn't exempt you from facing what is unfair. And even though Paul couldn't imagine 
our democracy, he's certainly not laying the groundwork for some kind of future government. Second negative statement here. In verse 4 of chapter 13, it says that the minister, that the government is the minister of God, the servant of God. It says it in several different ways. Let me just tell you what this is not saying. Paul is not endorsing the Roman government. He's not saying this is the way it ought to be. This is the best approach to governing. What he means is follow the rules. That's what it's about. Avoid negative press for Christianity. Let's calm down. Let's not press the panic button because they were ready to revolt. They were ready to withhold their taxes. They were ready to install what needed to be in their opinion, the kind of government they wanted. Well, those are the two positives, the two negatives. There's one big one, one big one that I want to make sure that you get that's worth probably underlining in your Bible, and it's a phrase that's in verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, and here's where you want to underline, for there is no authority except from God. There's no authority except from God. Now, what we quickly want to do is jump to what that means that, and assume that God endorses every authority that's put in place in government. Don't we do that sometimes? It's almost like we picture that, okay, well, after the votes are counted and you've got your elected leader, that God kind of stands up at the end of the political ad of that candidate says, I'm God and I certify this election. No. This is not an endorsement that every leader and every winner is acting and living according to God. That's not what this is about. Go back to the principle that I had you underline. There is no authority except from God. Who is our authority? God is. Who is our ultimate leader, the one that we worship? God is. God is the one that we've surrendered ourselves to. And so we got to be clear about this because they are in a time that's similar to ours in this regard. Now, a lot of times we want to skip over that and skip over the fact that God is our leader. But let me tell you, God's the greatest leader. He's a leader longer than any other leader. He's the one that is over all. And just as Jesus did not come to endorse a Jewish empire or a Roman empire, so we're not endorsing any empire at all. And winning is not a sign that God is endorsed. Because the danger here is that people will claim some kind of divine prerogative because they've won that somehow God backs their every move, and that is not the case. In fact, this is where I get angered and riled up. This is where I get a little worked up. I'm going to bring you an example, a current example, from the very first week of November. I'm not going to tell you who this person is. You can figure it out. I'm not going to tell you what party they're with or what state they're in. It doesn't matter. But the story matters, and how this person uses the name of God does matter. So a political ad came out, it's a 90 second ad, and it's, it's an ad that was sent out via social media by this person's spouse. And so there's clear endorsement of what's in this message. And the message begins with mainly just pictures and a background that says, and on the eighth day, 
after God created his perfectly planned paradise, God said, I need a protector. I need a fighter. And so God made a fighter. So this, the, the spot goes on to mention God 10 times in 90 seconds. That's once every nine seconds. So whenever a politician brings up God or brings up the Bible, they're fair game for me. This is not an appropriate use of God's name. To assume that you are created on the eighth day and to list off things that you're doing about saving jobs or saving lives or helping a lifestyle, all this list of things. Now, if you're like me, you know, a lot of times when I hear a politician mention God or a singer and it's not a cuss word, I'm like, oh, this is great. They're mentioning God. But don't be deceived. Don't be tricked. Because this is a move of taking divine authority, of assuming divine prerogative, of assuming that you were created on the eighth day before Jesus even shows up in human history. That drives me crazy. That makes me angry because it's displacing God to lift yourself up. It's using God even as one displaces and pushes God away. And that's, that's what I'm wanting you to be aware of. Because it's very dangerous whenever politics and religion get combined. A lot of times, religion is used to control politics. And vice versa. A lot of times, politics is used to control religion. And that is dangerous. And there are a lot of power play moves when people put the word biblical or values or conservative or liberal or socialist or whatever labels they want to put on it, buzzwords that try to sway us in a particular way. As Christians, who do we proclaim as Lord? Jesus is Lord. He is our only Lord. And we don't have to proclaim it, we can live it. We can live it out. If we're having to tell people all the time about our faith, we may not be living it. We may just be talking about it. And so, I don't see any kind of endorsement uh, of an empire, of a Christian nation. Those things are dangerous. And at this point, you might say, well, B.B., Brady Bryce, it's, it's sounding a lot like you're talking a bit of politics. Yes, yes. In some ways, I am. But whenever people use God to displace God, Wielding an authority that's not theirs to wield, that's dangerous. And so that you'll know that I'm calm and not crazy and not off my rocker, I'm tied to Scripture on this one. Have we looked at the whole context here? Do we even remember what happened in chapter 12? Because most people want to talk about a government passage and they'll look at chapter 13, but not at 12. I invite your eye back up the page from verses 14 down to verses 21. And invite this to infuse and infiltrate how we look at our world, how we think politically about our world. Because in these passages, we find some things that are quite different. They're quite different as Paul speaks to a group of people that are riled up not to pay their taxes, are riled up enough to create a ruckus to where they get kicked out of the capital of the Roman Empire. And Paul writes to them, and he says, bless those who curse you. Oh, he didn't mean political people. 
Pray for those who persecute you. Oh, but not the other side, right? No, that's not what he means. Don't take revenge. Leave room for God's vengeance. Well, wait, isn't that what politics is all about? It's me getting my way and me taking revenge. It's not what Paul says. It's not what Paul says to Christians that echoes down to us today. In fact, he even makes us go a little different way. Look at your enemies and feed them. Give them something to drink. My enemies, are you serious? Those illegal immigrants, those socialists, those conservatives, those fundamentalists, like enter whatever label you want. Yes, feed them, clothe them, take care of them. Heard something interesting about someone's approach to how they vote, how they take care of, of others. And it's a little different from mine, but I think I want to steal it. They brought up the fact that they had insurance and a job and money in the bank that they were taken care of. And so instead of using their vote, using their voice that we have in a democracy to promote that, they pay attention to how they might help those that don't have those protections that are the least among them, that are hungry and hurting. And I thought that's sounding remarkably Jesus-like, remarkably Christian, a different way of thinking it. It's backing us into chapter 12 to think about our governments and our authorities and the people around us in a way that I think is healthy and thoughtful and takes us past name-calling. Because as followers of Jesus, we have a different leader it's been set. There's no vote. It's taken care of. And it's a leader in Jesus Christ who didn't instigate riots, didn't instigate insurrections, didn't seek for vengeance. He didn't do those things. Instead, he took the way of surrender, death, and a cross. He took up a different approach entirely. And so we don't need human leaders that will clamor and claim that they deserve some kind of absolute trust. Whenever I, I see a lot of Christian anxiety, and I, it's my observation, and I could be wrong, like many things I've said, I could be wrong on. That's always the case. But it's my observation that a lot of times Christians have anxiety about what's going on in our government. And you know what I've noticed is that that anxiety it's not an anxiety about freedom of religion. It's kind of taken a shift. It's an anxiety to take away the freedoms of other people. That Christianity should be the only way to look at things and to push out any alternative viewpoint. That to me sounds a lot like a Christian empire or a Christian nation. And Jesus, who took the path of the cross, who took the way of suffering, that's not the way he operated. He operated by giving himself up to those political powers, up to those religious powers. And I'm thankful that we live in a different world, a different world that Paul couldn't imagine, a world where we can have our say, but not always our way. And maybe the best part of what Paul has to say comes next. It's coming even next week in verse 8. The only obligation that we have, the only thing that we need to pay is love. To know other people and love them. Not to fight them. 
to know that, that Christianity is quite adaptable. It fits in any language, any country, any type of government. We can exist, sometimes below the radar, sometimes having to be sneaky and subversive, but subversive in a way that turns the world toward love. In fact, we're supposed to be known by our love, not known by our success, not known by our brilliance or our power, but known by a love that was displayed in Jesus Christ, rejected by his religious authorities, rejected by his government at the time, primarily because he chose to love his neighbor, to show us what that love looks like and what it was willing to go to. Well, I think it's only fair for me to give you three things that are really, really practical. Three things that take this and make it to where we can act on it, right? So three quick things. The first one is that we should not put our hope or our anxiety in government. It's just not worth it. We don't have to worry about parties and votes and laws. We put our hope in God. That's a good place to be. That's a safe place to be. Even if it doesn't protect our lives, we put our hope in God. Second, be a good citizen. Do good everywhere you go. Loving your neighbor. Giving to the government your taxes. Showing that you are a good citizen. Being a good neighbor. The third one is about speaking and acting in a way that recognizes our neighbor or our enemy who might lack what we have and showing them love. The one that might show us hate and vengeance, the one that might disagree with us to no end, show them love. In fact, probably the clearest way I could say this third one is to confuse people by your love. Do, do things that are very confusing. It. Why are you showing me love in this way? Why are you reaching me in this way? And, and if you confuse them by your love, they're really going to want to know who your leader is. They're going to want to know who you're really following because it's not like the leaders of this world. You're following a God who's bigger, who's better, who is pulling us all together in this together story where he has brought Jews and Gentiles together as one group of people. Let's pray. Oh God, you are our God. We earnestly seek you in a dry and weary land. Father, we thank you that who is our leader is settled for us. And we request of you to walk alongside of us because we need help. This business of showing people love, of trying to be confusing by the love that we show, it's hard. It's day to day. And so, Father, please come alongside of us. Help us to see how we might best give witness to the gospel, give witness to the love of what you've shown us through Jesus Christ. And it's through him that we live and pray. And we ask this in his name. Amen.